We're going to gather back together. Grateful to be um, here with one another. Glad and grateful to be um, here as a family of families. Uh, Typically, we are studying through the book of Acts together. However, we are taking a two-week break starting tonight, and if, uh, if you don't closely follow the church calendar, today is the first day of what? Holy Week. Yeah, there you go. You're getting close there, my man. You're getting close. Uh, where the church intentionally focuses on Jesus' final days on earth. Now, depending on your church background and practices, this could include many different things, such as uh, the 40 days of Lent, right, that started on February 22nd, which is called Ash Wednesday, and lead all the way up unto Easter Sunday. Or it might simply start today and look over the next seven days of Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection. Typically, Holy Week or Passion Week or Easter Week is broken up into two, uh, into four main parts. Palm Sunday, right, which is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Thursday, where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, celebrating the Passover meal together. Friday, which is Jesus' trial and execution. And Sunday, Jesus' resurrection. Now, this evening, we're going to look at the first two parts of Passion Week, of Holy Week, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and Jesus' final Passover meal with his disciples. And then, as Pat mentioned earlier already this evening, um, we're going to come back together on Friday at 4.30 here, and we're going to consider his betrayal, his trial, and his execution. And then the glorious reality of Sunday at 8 a.m., not here, but at Dayspring Christian School on 20th, we are going to celebrate the risen Christ, the sacrificial lamb, whose payment… I'm sorry, I just said eight? Oh, man, good thing Pat's here. Nine o'clock, nine o'clock. If you come at eight… We'll take you at 8, because some of us will be there setting stuff up, right? So come at 9. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Come at 9. Come at 8, but come at 9 and um, celebrate the risen Christ. Amen? The sacrificial lamb, the payment as accepted and the uh, the debt canceled. Um, Getting a little ahead of myself. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open uh, it with me to the book of Luke, chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to read some uh, 20, um, some odd verses, and then we're going to make some observations, and then we're going to skip ahead a couple chapters to Luke chapter 22, and I'd encourage you through this week to read the things between. We don't have the time to talk about all of them tonight but I would encourage you to do so. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. The title for this evening's sermon is The Path to Peace. 
the path to peace, and it's inspired by Jesus' words that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, where he says the phrase, the things that make for peace. Jesus has an amazing public ministry. He calls his disciples great teaching, profound teaching, amazing miracles, but now the time has come where Jesus has fixed his eyes towards Jerusalem. Enter Luke chapter 19, verse 28, as he walks the path of peace. Let's read the text together. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage at Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, went away, and found it just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt. The owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Prince, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to it, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. God, you are great and greatly to be praised, and it's our desire that we come before your throne of grace this evening, only bringing our sin and our baggage before you, 
and yet are expectant that you who have made peace has has redemption and a remedy in mind to make things right that we have messed up. So Lord, as we consider the reality of what you have done some 2,000 years ago, culminating in the face of your son Jesus, in his life and his death and his glorious resurrection, as we remember, I pray that God, that it would stem to anticipation and anticipation would give birth to worship in our own hearts and our own minds as we reflect on what you're up to, what you've done, and what you will continue to do. Lord, I pray that you'd be with this time as we open up your word and expound upon it, that I would bring no offense to it, but that you, by your spirit, would go forth, accomplish the purposes for which you have set forth. We surrender our time to you. Have your way with us. We love you and all God's people said, amen. Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by many great and amazing things. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, John, and this book, Luke, are the four Gospel accounts of that momentous work And all of these four books, which we call the Gospels, contain within it the amazing eyewitness testimony that corroborates the life of Jesus as the Christ. Along with the teachings and the miracles that these four books have in common, they also have a profound theme. And the theme is this, that Jesus is preparing the way for his Father to make peace. His entire life was purposed to that end, each step day by day, working one step at a time, doing the will of the one who sent him, his Father. And as we now look at the beginning of the end with Jesus' trial and his arrival into Jerusalem, we see that the timing is right and the stage is set for Jesus to make peace. It's not by no sheer happenstance that Jesus chose to arrive in Jerusalem during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus had repeatedly decided during many different times and seasons in his three years of ministry that the public announcement of his kingship was not yet due. But the time is right now, and he's aligning his announcement with this feast of unleavened bread. And so what is taking place in this text is first the preparation of Jesus' announcement. Second is Jesus' actual arrival. Third is the people's response. And lastly is Jesus' response as he considers Jerusalem as a whole. Jerusalem during this time was thought to be a city somewhere around 40,000 people strong, which swelled in size to as many as six times that number during this occasion, this historic celebration that culminated in the Passover meal. So Jesus tells his disciples to go and find a colt of a donkey and bring it to him, and his disciples obey, and they go, 
And they find the colt just as Jesus said he would. They would. They bring the colt to Jesus, throwing their coats onto the back, and they place Jesus on the donkey, and he heads east towards Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives to the city. And as he went, the text tells us that the whole multitudes of his disciples spread their cloaks along the road and began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Now remember, this is all happening as individuals are traveling to Jerusalem, making the pilgrimage from their own homes to God's holy city to celebrate God's kindness to God's people by setting them free from the bondage of Egypt hundreds of years earlier. Now, we don't know how many people end up participating in this entry of Jesus because the text simply doesn't tell us. But I liken it to a sporting event where individuals have come from all over with a common goal to celebrate their team. There's a buzz and an excitement in the air, and the masses begin to funnel into the stadium to see their favorite team crush their opponent. Now, we don't know all the details, but it's not hard to believe that these individuals, regardless of how many of them were, were fired up, remembering God's faithfulness to rescue them and to lead them to the promised land, and maybe anticipating hopes that he might do it again. What if he just might throw off the Roman oppressors once and for all, and if he could reclaim the the throne of David and make the nation of Israel great once more? That is, I believe, the setting and the context for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. A mixture of true and genuine praise from his disciples, as well as genuine hope and praise from the crowd that this Jesus might be the one that they've been waiting for. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that the crowd cut palm branches from trees, which is where we get the phrase Palm Sunday. And they lined the path with them, and they raised their voice, saying, Hosanna, O save! Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 21 verse 10 says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. What we really have are three groups of individuals that are seeing and or participating in the announcement of Jesus. The first is his genuine disciples who are rebuked by the Pharisees. The second are individuals that are caught up in the moment, hoping that Jesus is bringing their desired peace. And the third and final are the Pharisees, the ones that might have known best 
at least intellectually, what Jesus was doing riding in on a donkey. It has to do with the prophecy given in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, of a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is overtly stating that he is the Davidic Messiah, the one who will bring salvation. Where before the time was not quite right, it is now. And Jesus has fixed his eye on Jerusalem to walk down the path to make peace. And it is profoundly noteworthy that all of these details, the time, the donkey, the location, the prophecy communicated years earlier, and thousands of other details, or all of it is coordinated effort of God to blaze the path to make peace. I haven't ever been to Jerusalem. Maybe one day I'll get to go there. I'm told that if you stand on the western wall and you look out over the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, you can see dots, and those dots are cars. And as Jesus made his way east, the text tells us, as he drew near and closer to the city, he began to weep. People are celebrating all around him. And Jesus is so moved by the plight of his beloved people and their lack of understanding of the things that must be done to make peace that he's moved to tears. Jesus' path to peace, as we will soon see, is very different than what others expected and even desired. But it is true and better peace that Jesus is going to accomplish. And his intentions are very clear to those that can see them for what they are. Jesus at some point dismounts the donkey and he moves towards the temple. Verses 45 through 48 This, too, is an overt declaration of who Jesus sees himself as, as the coming king that will cleanse his people. Don't miss the significance of these couple verses. Jesus enters the city by prophetic description, and then he goes to the most holy and sacred places known to the Jews, and he rebukes the Jewish leaders for their misconduct. And he declares the purpose and the possessor of the temple. Jesus declares the holy place as his house. 
my house. And that it is meant for prayer and worship. Matthew chapter 21 tells us that Jesus drove them out making room for the blind and the lame to come, and he heals them in the temple. And when the chief priests saw the wonderful signs that he did and that the children were crying, Hosanna, O save, the son of David, they were indignant. Jesus is stirring up the religious leaders and making plain his intention because he is walking towards the cross, the only path to peace. This path of peace has been established. It begins with the entry of king, and the king is making his arrival known. Now, Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Turn a couple pages to your right. Beginning in verse 7. Follow along as I read. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will we have us, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Many things have happened from Jesus' entry until now. The plot to kill Jesus has escalated by the Jewish leaders, and one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, has conspired against him to betray him when the timing is right. And what follows here in verses 7 through 20 in Luke chapter 22 is unprecedented. Now, that is not to say 
that the feast or the Passover meal was unprecedented. As we have already discussed, this was a monumental week in the life of a Jew. Every year, this feast was done to remember and anticipate the faithfulness of God to bring salvation from his people, from the big, bad Egyptians. The Passover meal was designed to bring strong remembrance to God's people of their plight and God's saving hand. In its stripped-down version, the Passover meal has, was composed of four main parts. The meal would typically take hours and would be instigated by the youngest children swarming the adults with questions. Why do we celebrate the Passover? Who is it for? Why do we do such and such? What follows is the explanation. After washing, individuals would recline around the table and they would dip a vegetable such as lettuce into a cup of intense salt water and they would eat it. Now, there's some speculation as to what this exactly points to. The best research that I have been able to find is that the lettuce represents an interesting technicolor dream coat from a man named Joseph. We remember Joseph. Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac. Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and of his 12 sons, his favorite son was named Joseph. And he was given a coat. And if we remember the story, we recall that his brothers, jealous of Joseph, desirous to kill him, kidnaps him, but instead of actually murdering him, they sell him off into slavery. And what did they do with his precious coat? They killed an animal and they dipped it in blood and they took it back to their father and deceived him and said, your son has been killed. And we know that from that event, God moved his people into the land of Egypt where they would later be enslaved. Anybody remember what blood tastes like? It's awfully salty. And so the first item of the Passover meal points to the remembrance it is the means by which the people of God got enslaved in the first place. It was their sin that got them enslaved. At this point in the meal, they would toast to God's faithfulness even in the midst of their sin 
through God's blessing of the vine, and they would drink some wine to wash down that salt water. The second element of the meal is the eating of the herb, literally horseradish. Yikes. Does anybody like horseradish? Now, before you raise your hand, does anybody like eating straight horseradish? That's right. Straight horseradish. Intense stuff literally brings tears to the eyes. And it is the second element of the Passover meal to remind individuals of the harsh reality of enslavement to Pharaoh. And then there's another long drink of wine. Praise God. Still faithful in the midst of real hardship. The third element is the element of unleavened bread, something that we are far more familiar with, I think. That God instructs them to take bread without yeast because yeast takes time to rise and God's plan to rescue his people out of a bondage was expedient and definitive. We are in slavery, we are in slavery, we are in slavery, we are now free and go. And take with you the substance of life, food ready for travel. And it too was washed down by the blessing of God's kindness of the vine. Which leads us to the last part of the Passover meal, the blood of the Lamb. We know from Exodus that God poured out ten unique plagues against the Egyptian nation, all of which, ironically, combat an Egyptian god, another sermon for another time. Resulting in the last plague, the angel of death, who took the life of the firstborn of any household, but passed over the homes that took the blood of an unblemished, spotless lamb and marked the sides and the top of the doorways of their homes, symbolizing sitting under the blood of the lamb. The lamb would be roasted. We'd throw it on our Traeger and we'd eat it. And then that too would be washed down by the blessing of God from the vine. Now all of that was well known to Jesus and Jesus' disciples. All of that was monumental, but not unprecedented. So why do I say that it is here? Because Jesus lays claim to the Passover meal and tells us what it is ultimately pointing to, which is the true and better peace and rescue that he is going to provide. See, Jesus communicates this principally by helping his disciples see that the Passover is not only about the past, but also the future. See, no one had ever said 
that this bread given to us as a reminder of life that God alone gives is ultimately a picture of my broken body. Broken so that he might bring forth everlasting life. No one had ever said that. No one had ever said that this blood, the blood of the spotless lamb that we remember sitting under to allow the judgment of God to pass over us is ultimately pointing to my shed blood that will be shed for you. The true and better lamb whose name is Jesus Christ. It's his shed blood that hides us from the wrath of God. It's his broken body that gives salvation, life eternal, and sets the captives free. And it's not just freedom from bondage to an earthly power or a freedom for a time or a season. It's true and lasting peace that Jesus is after. Because we have, like the brothers of Joseph, got ourselves into this mess of slavery in the first place. We do, like the Israelite people back then, wrestle with the hardship, suffering, and bondage of slavery. But Jesus' words back in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus' great aim is for them and for us today is to see the eternal things that make for peace. Peace that rescues us from our greatest enslavement, which is our own sinful flesh, where we have gone our own way and we rebelled against God, enslaving ourselves. But God, in the great love with which he loved us, right, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the appeasement for our sin, 1 John 4.10. That is what Holy Week is about. Worshiping God because of the peace that he made for us in the face of Jesus Christ. Commissioning the new covenant in his blood, the means of peace. What we will take, what will take place over the next several days as we as a church family will look at this path to peace. On Friday, his betrayal, his trial, and his execution, and what we will celebrate 
with awe and amazement on Sunday is the glorious resurrection, securing peace in his name. Amen? My prayer for us this week is that we would think often of the path that Jesus walked and the realities that he secured for all who confess that he is Lord. And may that stir worship in your heart and a desire to make him known in your life, in your family, in this church, and this city who desperately needs to know him for his great glory and our eternal joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.